The State Department has renewed its drive to hire data scientists. Its Center for Analytics is accepting applications to become GS-13 data scientists. But it's a department-wide hiring initiative. State will keep the positions open through May 25th or until it receives 400 applications. For details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Division Director of Communications, Culture and Training at the Analytics Center, Farah Khan. The objective of this initiative is the same as it was last year. We want to recruit talented data scientists who want to contribute to diplomacy. So in doing so, you know, we're aiming to promote a data culture and leverage data into department decision making. This year, we held a webinar that was very similar to the one that we had last year. It was a public information session. And we looked at the data. Of course, we're data people, right? We looked at the data for this year's webinar and compared the engagement that we had this year with last year's engagement. And we saw both registration and participation go up by about 36%. So we know from the webinar and from inquiries that we received that there's an increased interest in data scientists and interest in registrants wanting to join the State Department because it's an ideal place to work. And for data scientists who also want to play a role in shaping foreign policy, what better place to do that than the State Department? Okay, excellent. Well, I think if memory serves correct, last time this was a very quick turnaround from the job posting happening and the job announcement closing. So give me a sense of how many hires the State department is looking to make. I believe that was around 50 last time. Just uh, a little bit of the basic facts of what's going on here. Well, the exact number of positions are sort of fluid. We don't have the exact number right now. Um, But what I can tell you is it is in the double digits. We've noticed, again, there's been growing interest in data positions across our bureaus and offices within the department. And so demand for applicants is strong. It will close, though, when we reach either 400 applicants or two weeks. So it's a very short window. We want to make sure people know about it. So we will be like pushing that out. And it could even be shorter than two weeks again, because once we reach our cap of 400 applicants, they will close down the application process. So for anyone interested in contributing to the State Department's mission in the most rewarding and impactful way, please pay attention to usajobs.gov because that is where we will have the announcement. Okay, well, if past this prologue here, we'll be measuring this in a matter of days, not weeks, but uh, yeah, we'll see more to come there. I'm really kind of curious about how the modernization of hiring has been happening with the data efforts at the State Department. You know, we've heard some new tools in the toolbox here. I think hiring certs have been among them. And I think that's a really useful way to ensure that there's a kind of constant pipeline of talent ready, even if during this initial hiring phase, there might not be a position for them. It seems like a good way to keep people on tap if you know positions open up. Can you explain a little bit more for my audience about these hiring certs and how they are a helpful way to uh, ensure that pipeline of in-demand talent. Let me explain a little bit about the hiring process, how it works for this initiative, and then uh, we can talk a little bit about the CERT. So the MSS Center for Analytics is hosting a shared certificate, which means positions are available in bureaus and offices throughout the department. GTM, which is also our, what I like to say, big HR, right, will review the applicants followed by a subject matter experts review. The subject matter experts will review the resumes for specific data science competencies, and this helps the department to hire qualified candidates in a timely and effective manner. This process for hiring data scientists adds a layer of reviews by SMEs, the subject matter experts, And by having the SMEs review those resumes before the certificate is issued, we can ensure that hiring managers are receiving the most highly qualified candidates. 
Bureaus will then conduct their own interviewing and hiring of candidates. In a typical government hiring process, an applicant self-attests to their qualifications when they apply to the job postings on USA Jobs. Then Human Resources reviews whether they are qualified for the role and determine if they make the hiring certificate. And then they are referred to the hiring manager who may set up a round of interviews before making a selection. So that's sort of how the hiring process works for this initiative. Okay, got it. And you uh, you brought up the, another crucial component of this, which is the subject matter expert qualification assessments. That seems to be a really crucial way to make sure the applicants coming in the door are up to a certain standard that you're getting those subject matter experts who already work for state to kind of vet the candidates, make sure they have the in-demand skills. Um, that seems to be another crucial part of it, as you just said. Yes, absolutely. And it's important because we want to make sure that we get the right talent in the department to do this amazing work that we're doing right across the globe. And so having those subject matter experts review, uh, we are able to sift through the applications and, and get the appropriate people to the right people for interviews or selections. And I just wanted to highlight one other key detail that I think is important for people to understand It's how the certification helps the department to recruit talent, but also what happens when the application period closes. Well, depending on the needs of our offices and bureaus and hiring managers, the selections can be made from this certification for up to 240 days. Although we expect selections will be made sooner than that, it allows hiring managers the flexibility to hire anytime within that period. Okay, great. And to look at this a little bit broadly, what kind of data skills is the State Department looking for here that can really cover a wide scope of things? And what mission areas within the department are in need of those data skills? We're looking for data scientists with hard skills, such as programming, statistics, communicating both visually and through language, the results of an analysis, engineering skills, and more. You know, we work on real world issues that directly measurably impact the American people. So we want people who want to contribute to a mission that is bigger than themselves. And, you know, we're one of those places to work that does that, right? Like, I mean, you have other companies that have data science roles that focus on data science within the organization, whereas ours is more uh, broader and global. A relatively short period of time that the Center for Analytics has been a going concern, but it has really kind of helped drive a lot of modernization initiatives at the State Department. And so how ultimately does that work out? And how does CFA kind of make sure that this data expertise is at hand for a really wide range of missions here? CFA operates as a shared service provider in that we help solve data problems for other areas of the department domestic and abroad in our overseas missions. You know, we are the department's data management and analytics capability. We leverage a highly strategic intake process to determine what analytics projects to work on and where the projects will fit within our queue. And we also prioritize our projects, whose value most closely aligns with the department's strategic priorities and furthers its mission. We also prioritize those that show tremendous potential to inform policy decision-making and or save department resources. So it's really all about having mission alignment and measuring return on investment and impact. That's really what it comes down to. Thinking back to the hires that the State Department has made recently, where have those hires gone off to do important work? Like, what have their functions been since coming aboard? The Department of State is highly diverse. We work on 
projects that range from foreign policy to consular services and anything in between. And we have a lot of data professionals that support every aspect of the department's mission. You know, we have folks that work in the Center for Analytics that help us execute our enterprise data strategy, primarily working on data campaigns and developing and delivering analytics products. I mean, since the launch of the enterprise data strategy, we've surged resources toward mission-themed data campaigns in areas such as strategic competition, multilateralism, and climate. And then in the management-themed campaigns, we focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, cybersecurity, and global operations. We've made significant progress in these areas, but our data scientists have also become a force multiplier during crisis in which the department leads. Farah Khan, Division Director for Communications, Culture and Training at the State Department's Center for Analytics, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty. 
to keep the cold wind out, I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.